3: we're excited to introduce you to one of our newest partners on the five reasons network which like us is pure south florida that's Doral toyota where you can find all of your favorite toyota models whether you're looking for a new used or certified pre-owned vehicle Dural toyota is located at 9775 northwest 12th street that's 9775 Northwest 12th Street, just a few blocks from International and Dolphin Malls. Experience the Doral difference, which means four years of complimentary maintenance and roadside assistance on all new vehicles. Also, in-house financing is available for credit-related issues. If you mention five reasons when you call 305-680-1129, that's 305-680-1129, or you come into the dealership, you work directly with a dedicated manager, not a salesman. Unlike other dealers, Doral Toyota prides itself on an honest and transparent buying process. That's Doral Toyota, DoralToyota.com, or stop in at 9775 Northwest 12th Street. Vamos, let's go. Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as always. With Chris Whittingham. If you have found us, hit the follow button to subscribe. That way you'll get all of the old episodes, all of the new episodes as soon as they post. And also check out the other podcasts in our network that includes Miami Heat Beat, Three Yards Per Carry on the Dolphins, the Balls Cast podcast, which is our Miami sports, culture, and politics pod with a little bit of a humorous tone to it, and Pitch Invasion, which my co host here, Chris Whittingham, runs. And that's going three times a week. During the World Cup, also check out the Five Reasons Sports Twitter account because we'll have news on the five new podcasts that we are adding to the network, including Goldie on Ice, our new hockey podcast that's going to start up here in a couple of weeks. All right. One of the most popular things that we've done here on the podcast has been the Heat Stories uh, episodes. And we started those with Jason Jackson uh, because Jason likes to talk. So we decided to bring Jason on for a little bit. Uh, Then we had Eric Reed, we had Tony Fiorentino, we had Ron Rothstein. and then we decided to add you Haslam and you can find that one in our library. And I got to say, Mario, I, I put this out on our Twitter account, um, who people wanted next on the heat stories, uh, segment of our podcast. And, uh, and you won so so that's why (laughs) that's why i reached out to you you beat Dwayne, actually so uh, you know i we'd like to get Dwayne on at some point too but we're going to start here with you so thank you for doing it and i know you're in miami right now as we're talking to you right
4: definitely definitely back in miami
3: what has before we get into uh, we're going to go back all the way through your career your time in miami and then obviously what you've been doing since and what you want to do next has this been a routine for you the past couple years even when you're not the heat not with the heat to come back here for a bit oh yeah definitely you know in the offseason,
4: I, I live in Miami, so I, I haven't left since I got traded or since I got drafted here. So, anytime in
3: the summertime, you catch me in Miami. All right. So, we, we've seen some of the Instagram photos and some of the stuff and the work that you've been doing, and we're going to touch on that here over the course of the pod. But I want to go back to the beginning with you and kind of just the way that you grew up because it was not sort of the customary way for an NBA player to grow up in the places that you lived. What was that experience like for you? I know, obviously, you have ties to the Charlotte area and then, obviously, Alaska, where you're like the pride of Alaska in terms of NBA basketball. But what was that experience like for you and and, and just moving around a little bit and kind of developing your passion for the game?
4: Um, the passion of the game was developed at an early age. You know, my mom, my dad played basketball. My grandpa played basketball. So pretty much everybody in my family played basketball. So that was just something that was uh, in my DNA as I was being created. You know, just coming out, being in Alaska, my dad's in the military. So, you know, that's how I got to English, Alaska. And, you know, just playing basketball out there. I had to travel every weekend just to get coaches coaches to notice me. I had to go to Vegas and L.A. You know, that's really how I got started, got my name out there. David the uh, Pump Brothers was the team I played for. David and Dana Pump, Team Pump and Run. So that was a team that really got me started and really helped me get my name out there. And then after that, my skills set just, to let the, the, the rest of the topic.
5: To me, it's been kind of funny. I, I, I watched the show uh, last week tonight with John Oliver on HBO, and they've been talking about how one of the last remaining blockbusters in America is in Alaska because <laughs> they, they don't have enough high-speed internet out there in order to you know have Netflix or, or really have it be that popular, so they have blockbusters still out there. So that's kind of a, a picture that I have of life in Alaska. What was it like for you?
4: It was kind of like that, but at the same time, you don't really know because you're not going, you're not in the lower 4 with everything that's happening. So we did get a lot of things late. But to us, that was new. So, I mean, we, we are a little bit behind, but, uh, you know, we're we working on it. We're making progress.
5: And, and in terms of getting noticed, you mentioned going to, to Las Vegas and other places where you had to go and do that. Was it frustrating for you at all that you weren't in kind of a more, you know, maybe town-rich area, that it would have been easier? Or or did that kind of, you know, having to work at it almost make you better as a player? I think it
4: made, made me better as a player. Go play against different competition in, in different states and not just playing against the same competition in Alaska. I think that really made me a lot better, uh, gave me different, things to work on different ways to change my game and adjust to different situations so I think that really helped me turn me into the
3: player I am so where did the confidence come from because obviously (laughs) heat fans know you from that like where did where did that start when you were a kid like when you were playing with other kids playing with bigger kids like where did you develop that confidence in yourself was there one experience that kind of brought that out in you
4: it's been just different experiences. I think just from growing up, I had a lot of people in Alaska tell me that I would never make it, never amount to anything. So that was a little bit of my drive and motivation is just to go out there and be the best player I could be. And then um, just from me, I think it was just built inside me and get it from my parents. It was just, you know, never let anybody talk down about you. Never tell anybody that you can't do anything. You know, my dad always taught me everybody put on their same shorts the way you do on your boxers the same way you do. So that just stuck with me. It was like, well, I'd be scared of somebody that could, that I could do the same thing they can do.
3: So what was the recruiting experience like? Like uh, you, you end up at Kansas uh, with Bill Self and we're going to get into the shot, obviously, because we want to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> but like the sort of the road there, like how many coaches recruited you? How did you make the decision that you wanted to go to Lawrence? How did that play out?
4: Um, honestly, I could have went to any school in America. I mean, that that's what, that's all the letters I was getting from different schools, but Growing up, I was always a Tar Heel fan. I mean, I always said to, from day one, I was going to North Carolina. And you know, when that time came, I had a conversation with Roy Williams. We talked. I was ready to go there, and, and he told me that uh, he told me the only way I could come there is Raymond Felton went pro. And then the next week, he offered Bobby Fraser a scholarship, and that kind of turned me off in North Carolina. So. Then I went back to the drawing board. I was always a Coach Shell fan, even when he was at Illinois. I liked the way he let his guards play. And, you know, him going to Kansas and Kansas being really the mecca of basketball where it really got started with James Naismith and all that. Um, it was just a good opportunity for me to go and have a chance to really lead my mark and, and make a name.
5: And and so you get to college, what is that sort of like as a, as a star basketball player on a college campus where, it you know, Kansas basketball is the life, I would presume, of Lawrence, Kansas, of all of the state of Kansas. Is that, in some ways, how does that prep you for an NBA experience? And, and what is that like in a small college town, really being the star of the city?
4: That uh, preps you a lot for the, for the NBA. Well, for me, it did. Just because, you know, you go out, you're the star of the town. You know, everybody wants to autograph, everybody wants to pitch, everybody wants to talk to you. And then coming to Miami, being in the NBA, it was kind of the same thing here. So it was kind of it kind of prepared you beforehand um, to to for the next level and to be ready to expect things like that and be prepared for it.
3: All right, so let's go to the, to the the game that everybody remembers you most from. I mean, you had a really good collegiate career, but it's like I feel like it was all distilled down into it's like sort of like with Ray where Ray had this incredible pro career but like everybody remembers him for that shot in 2013 yeah. which we're going to talk about. So I I sort of feel like it's the same way with you in college. So obviously you had a really good college career, you on a very very good team, and then you're playing against Derrick Rose in the final four. And so I, I first, what was your preparation like for that matchup? Because obviously at that point, Derek was getting quite a bit of hype and and was going to end up being the first pick in the draft, as it turned out. And then take us through, if you can, sort of the moment as it develops before you make the shot that everybody remembers. I
4: mean, honestly, to get prepared for that, for that Memphis game, it all started with me from last year. Uh, the year before that, we played UCLA and Anaheim, I think it was, and I was go to the final four. And I had the worst game of my career. Um, I mean, they put Josh Ship on me. He locked me down. Like, I wasn't strong enough. I was quick enough. I wasn't able to do anything against him. So that summer, my mindset just changed that I had to mentally prepare and, and just do all the little things to get my body ready to, to be a, a great basketball player. So I spent a lot of time in the weight room and doing a lot of conditioning stuff that summer. And just to be ready for that next year just to be ready for that moment. And, you know, when that moment came, I was already prepared. I did my work in the summertime. Um, I did my work during the season, and I watched film. I just did all the little things to be prepared. And, and know at the end of the day, you know a players' tendencies, but at the end of the day, once that ball is out there in the middle of the court, you no telling what can happen. And just by doing that, we just went out there. We knew we was underdog that whole tournament for number one seed. So, you know, we just quietly kept rolling. Um, Let everybody talk about us. So we, we left our mark. We kept going to the end. All right. And that so- shot. Uh, the shot the shot is something we've been working on for since I got to KU. I mean, I've hit that shot probably a million times in practice and probably three or four times in the game before then that nobody really saw. So that that's something that we always did. Coach has always gave me the confidence and gave my teammates always gave me the confidence to take that last shot. So when it came to that moment, Coach Chef was like, who wants to take the last shot? And everybody looked at me. I was like, okay. And Coach Chef <laughs> was like, give him the ball. <laughs> So, so I was like, okay, you give me the ball, we're going overtime. And that's what I told the team before we left the huddle, before we fouled Derrick Rose and all that. So, we all knew what was going to happen. We knew he missed us, we thought we were going to overtime to win. And and that's a, that comes from just the confidence I have and you know I always want the last game shot I always want that big shot moment
5: and it, for, for me it's kind of fascinating that you're kind of in this exclusive club of players that have actually got to live out what is the ultimate childhood dream which is you're on a playground you're, you're practicing basketball and you go three two one at the buzzer and he makes it and it's, you know I think of like Chris Jenkins doing it for Villanova too like it, it's such an exclusive group group of people that actually get to live that out on such a big stage
4: well actually that's a second something happened because the year before that we played Texas in in Oklahoma. That was Kevin Durant's team, and I hit that same shot to send that game in overtime, and we won that game in overtime. So to me, it was just like it was just deja vu. It was just a, a bigger stage. Like oh, I've been here before. I just did this last year in the Big Twelve Championship. So it's just the NCAA championship. Either you're gonna make it or you're gonna miss it, but you you're gonna still play. So, I mean, it was just my confidence in, in the way my teammates and the coaching staff made me feel about taking that shot.
3: Take me to the moments in the hours after it, because obviously you've gone back to Lawrence many, many times since, and I know you've been honored. You've been put in the Hall of Fame there, I think, what was that, four or five years ago at this point, right? Mm-hmm. But what was sort of the craziest thing that happened? Because I, I just – I can't imagine what it would be like to sort of, again – in a town that's as crazy about basketball as that one uh, with fans that are as crazy about that team as they are. And for you to hit a shot like that, like what was just the celebration experience? Like,
4: I mean, we didn't fly back to Lawrence that night. We stayed in San Antonio. So we missed the real big party in Lawrence. That party's all over the internet with pictures and that was one night. I wish I could have been in Lawrence just for that for that night. But for us after the game, you know, we just had a little hotel party in San Antonio. Um, nothing major it was us, us, the players, the dancers, the cheers, the drums, uh, the the band, and the coaches. So that that night was just a little chill night. But when we got back to Lawrence, that's when all the real fun happened. So. That's when all the big parties and everything, the, the warm welcomes and just everything after that. Like, it got to a point where one of my one of my teachers called Coach Shuff was like, Mario can't come to class tomorrow. He's too much of a distraction. Like, I had lines <laughs> of people outside of the class <laughs> with the Sports Illustrated. Like, with the Sports Illustrated waiting for me to sign it. Like, I even had people in my class like, yo, can you sign this real quick while the teacher is giving, like, a lecture. And we'll be like, oh, okay, well, yeah,
2: <laughs> I don't
3: care.
4: So it, it got to the point where it was like, all right, like, this is what it's like to be on top. Like, this is a great feeling, Like right? I never want to lose this feeling.
3: So I'm going to ask you to compare something. Uh, because, look, I, I remember being in San Antonio uh, during the finals and, and just being at a bar a night before one of the finals games when you were in the finals. And just in San Antonio, you just, you know, you look up and there's there's a newspaper framed on the wall with Mario's Miracle. Like, it's just, I mean, all the <laughs> sports cars in San Antonio have that. I think I actually shot a picture of it and showed it to you because I was like, okay, so there, there it yeah, is. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, right, right in the middle of the bar. So, you know, and and I sent you know I sent you a photo of you celebrating uh, with a big bottle um, after one of the two championships in Miami. So I'm gonna make you compare here uh, the feeling uh, that one or the two you won with the Heat. What was more euphoria for you?
4: I get this question all the time, and it's probably the top five hardest questions I have to answer. But my answer would be it's tough. Because being on that Kansas team and being the man, like being one of the top three players on that team, that is one of the greatest feelings ever. And, you know, to be celebrated like that, but at the same time being on the championship team at the highest level, you know, that's a dream come true. You know, no nobody really gets that opportunity to, to win at all three levels of championships. So... Um, I might have to go with the NBA just because I solidified my career as a champion on all levels.
3: Okay, well, that's a good answer for a Miami-based podcast. So, so stick with that. <laughs> stick with that
5: one, Rio. And, when, and look, when when you're on in Kansas, you can say, you can say that it was a national championship. You, 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 I, I, yeah, I know. Uh, when, yeah,
4: you,
3: you'll definitely, definitely when,
4: say when I'm so. in Kansas, it's a national championship.
3: Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and and I, look, I, I didn't know you you were going to say you weren't one of the three best players on the team that won in Miami. So we're going to get to that a little bit later because that that answer surprises yeah. me. Uh, but I was but
4: <laughs>
3: i admit fourth. But... <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you Dion
5: again on that one. We'll give you fourth. For an athlete to be successful, he needs a team. Same as in business. That's why more small to mid-sized businesses in South Florida are choosing Greenlight Tech, the full-service concierge IT company that gets it right. Greenlight Tech advises, monitors, supports, and keeps your important data backed up and secure. They'll even manage your vendors. Call Greenlight Tech at 561 325 nine 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 seven that's 561-325-9997. mention five reasons and get a free assessment sign up and your first month is free be unstoppable visit greenlight tek that's greenlight com.
3: all right so let's transition here a little bit so so you come out of kansas and you're a second round pick. Uh, I'm just going to give you, uh, if you go back, if you look at the stats right now from that draft, um, and you redraft this thing in terms of some of the metrics they use, the statistics that they use, which value over replacement player is one of them. Uh, you should have been drafted 13th, not 34th, um, in that draft. In terms of the way that played out, you know, it all happens for a reason. De- uh, actually, your your college teammate Terrell Arthur actually was 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 in that draft too. I forgot about that 27th. So you yeah. go 30, you go 34th to the Heat, um, and, and I remember this uh, being up in Orlando because a lot of the attention was on Michael was on Michael Beasley. Cause he, he was the second pick in the draft. I remember you having a couple of really strong uh, games to start that summer league. And I remember bees really struggling in, in one of those two games. Um, but you, you made an impression Early on, did you feel from the very beginning uh, after the Heat drafted you when you got to that camp that you belonged, that you had a chance maybe to even be a starter for that team your first year?
4: I did. I mean, once I first got there and I had my couple of conversations, um, you know, Coach Riley told me at the time, like, the positions wide open. Um, you know, you come in here, you prove yourself to show us that you deserve to start. You can have that position. So that was that was just my mindset when I got there. You know, I had that chip on my shoulder from dropping all the way down to going 34th. So Um, That just gave me extra motivation. I got a chip on my shoulder from being drafted later and then I get a chance to start on the the team that one of my favorite players, so it was a great opportunity, and you know, I was eager for the opportunity.
5: And in terms of you know on on draft night, did you think you were going to be a first round and 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 sort of what what is that night like? And because we see it when it happens on camera, but you know for for guys like you that you know were second round picks, weren't in the green room on the night. Like, did, were you maybe promised you're going to go higher, or was that around where you thought you might go? I was
4: actually promised by three teams that I'll be drafted in the first round. I'm not going to say those teams, but wow. that was the only reason I went to the draft on that night was because those three teams said they would, that if one of them didn't take me, one of them was going to take me for sure. So um, for me, that experience is bittersweet. Um, you know, just sitting there and, and not seeing your name getting called when it's supposed to was a little disappointing, but then to actually get your name called, it, it's still a dream come true at the end of the day. You know, you still got to, I was still happy um, that I got drafted. I wasn't really too happy about going to Minnesota, but when I heard about Miami and that weather, uh that changed my whole mindset so
3: um <laughs> i mean that's
4: just that's just how it goes. you know draft night you never know what to expect, but once you get your opportunity, you make the most of it. What
3: did you think of bees the first time you met him? Honestly, the first time I met bees was at a a b it was at an Adidas basketball camp,
4: and I think I was maybe fifteen, sixteen, he was twelve or thirteen, and we hated each other. Me and Bees did not get along at all, and it was just one oh, of those things. That. Like we were so competitive. Yeah, we were so competitive, and it was always, it was always, you know, Bees this, Bees that, or Mario this, Mario that. Just because we was the two names at that camp. So it just from that point on, we really didn't like each other. And then from Kansas to Kansas State, that even put more fuel to the fire. And you know, we hated each other. Like it was always something between me and Bees. And then after draft night. And it's funny, after draft night, after we went to an after-party, he went to an after-party, and I, I got there late. You know, I, went, I got drafted later on, so I got there a little bit later. And uh, he seen me, he's like, yo, Rio, come here. And I was like, oh, what's about to happen now? He's like, yo, welcome to the squad, da-da-da. I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, yeah, yeah, what's up, man? I'm like, I'm proud of you, congratulations. You know, we're about to be teammates. We're about to change the thing around. You know, Miami's coming off that 15-67 and 67 season, so it was on us. He was like, yeah, yeah. So ever since then... That night we we clicked and like we still talk to this day. Like I just Facetimed B's probably like three days ago, and like that's that's one of my closest friends in the world right now. And you know that that relationship all changed just because of the draft.
3: So he was under. You were in a different situation than him because obviously again remembering it, like you said, you get you were coming into a fifteen and sixty seven team. And people had seen you play in college, and so I think Heat fans were excited about it. There there needed to be a change at that position also uh, for the Heat with something going forward. But he was the second overall pick, and for a long period of time that year, we thought he was going to be the number one overall pick. It was kind of late in that college season that Derrick Rose passed him, that it it looked like it was going to be Bees as the number one pick. As you look back on it now, and – sort of the way things went for Michael, particularly the first time in Miami, not not so much coming back the second time and the third time, but that first time, is there something he could have done different? Is there something the organization could have done different to make it easier for him? Because it never seemed as comfortable for him as it should be.
4: I'm going to put it like this. It's never going to be comfortable for any rookie coming to Miami. <laughs> this is this is one of the hardest cities to just to play in just because of the atmosphere and everything. Everything about Miami, you know, like a kid from me from Alaska to to Miami, changed my whole life. It's a totally different experience, something I've never seen growing up. And B's was kind of the same way coming from D.C. So uh, being in Miami, I just think a little bit of immaturity, a little bit of, you know, the Heat family didn't really want to put up with everything, especially when you have somebody like LeBron and CB coming in that's already proven vets and establishing the league. So I think it was just the situation was – it was it wasn't a bad situation but it was just different at the time i think Bron coming really changed everything up
5: so so what, what, when when you say that it's a totally unique experience coming to miami i think obviously a lot of people you know know south beach no you know a, a, lot, a lot of the the partying aspects but but what 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 was your experience of miami coming here and why do you think it's difficult for young guys to get on here
4: it's just everything i mean miami's a different culture like they really work they put in work and work and work so it's like if you if you don't come here you're not ready to work and you want to hang out all night and, and and do everything else like Miami's a city that doesn't shut down. So it's kind of like Vegas like you could be out all night and then try to go to practice and not have a good practice or not have a good game. Like you just get swallowed in the lifestyle and it's not it's nothing bad, it's just it's just different out here. Like it's it's like being overseas anywhere. Like everything you have every culture or every different thing that you want to see in Miami. So of course, as a young person with with money, you're to want to go to see and go go out and do different things and As long as you take care of your on-the-court stuff, then you shouldn't have a problem off the court. And I think that's where – that's the hard part about being in Miami. I know I struggled with that in the beginning.
3: I want to move to your relationship with Dwayne a little bit and and how that developed. Because when you came in 2008, he was already a champion – he then gone through some injuries. The team had kind of cratered a little bit after winning the championship in 2006. Then they had the Shaq situation. They traded him. Then Dwayne gets hurt. And then he kind of rebuilds himself, you know, that summer at the Olympics and, and, you know, had two incredible seasons uh, alongside you in the backcourt. When do you think you kind of earned Dwayne's trust as a player and as a person?
4: Um, I think it, it, it stemmed back from when I, I first met D-Wade when he came, when Marquette came to the Great Alaska Shootout, and I was the number one player in Alaska, so they set up a meeting with me and him in the back, and that was the first time I ever met him, so I just think ever since then, he's been a favorite player of mine, just the way he accepted me, he talked to me, he gave me like the game, tried to teach me a little thing, so that was something for me that clicked for me just cause, like, I always looked up to but We never had really, like, a lot of basketball players from Alaska that made it. You know, we had Trey Lane and Carlos Boozer. You know, I'm real close with them. But it was, it was good to hear it from somebody else. And I think that's when we – when I started following his career. career and then when I got to Miami, it was just one of them things. Like, he just took me under his wing. And that was from day one. Like, first day I met him, he was like, yo, you're going to be with me. I'm going to show you the ropes. And it was just ever since then, it was like we just clicked. And I, not just how it worked
3: you started every game as a rookie from what i recall right you played all 82 and right. you were kind of entrenched as a starting point guard but it felt like every year they were bringing in somebody else right it was arroyo it was austin then it was bibby uh in 2011 how did you handle all of those situations did Dwayne help you through that at all it just how did you process that because you always ended up being the starter afterwards. Uh, but it always seemed like there was someone else who was, they were bringing in to challenge you for your job. Um, I mean, I think my
4: confidence was really what helped me. with that. you know, i, I seen what was happening. i seen that they kind of try to bring, you know, other, other vets over me. But I think, I think that was more, I looked at it as more of them trying to figure out a way to help teach me different things. Because like, if you really looked at it, they never really tried to bring in a, a younger point guard or a, a, a young point guard that can, hog up all the minutes or that would do anything. So, I mean, I look at Bibby State, like I learned stuff from Bibby, I learned stuff from Skip, and I learned stuff from Carlos Arroyo too. So, I just think picking their brains, it was was kind of their way of teaching me, but not telling me that they're teaching me. So, that's how I kind of looked at it. All
3: right, so let's move on here a little bit. You have those two years. Dwayne has two incredible seasons, uh, again, alongside you in the backcourt. But you guys kind of tapped out. You you, you lost in the first round uh, two straight years, the Atlanta series, the Boston series. Dwayne famously, I remember this at a press conference up at TD garden in Boston, basically said, I need more help. And, and then in the off season, Pat went and got help. Um, so I guess the question would be from your perspective, as all of this is going down first, Chris Kibosh commits and then LeBron commits. What were you doing that day? <laughs> like what was, <laughs> like, I mean, were you watching the decision? Did you have any kind of a clue that LeBron was going to come down here to Miami? Like Like how did how did you experience? It was going to affect you in terms of uh you know in terms of your role on a team, but also what kind of team that this was going to be.
4: Um, I I knew I knew I knew he was coming. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, I did I did kind of figure he was coming. But what I was doing that day, um, actually I was laid up in the bed. I had had just popped four four ligaments in my ankle, so I was in a cast. And I remember I was laying out and I was looking. I got a text from D Wade, and the text said, "Get ready." And I was like, "Huh." So I didn't I didn't take it back that day. I was just started thinking about. it. I started watching TV. I was like, oh, the decision today. You know, at that time, I was the only person on the Heat roster at that time.
5: That's right. So it was kind of like,
4: <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like, hmm, I wonder what's gonna happen. He sent me this text, and it's like, okay, Chris Bosch coming to Miami, Gron coming to Miami, Mike Miller coming to Miami, and it was just like, okay, I see, I see the dominoes falling, and I see that they got rid of all the young guys and kept me. So in my mind, it was just like, they believe me. So it's time to to mature yourself and figure out why they kept you and that's the one thing I, I had to do i had to change my act i had to take it, the game more seriously take take life more seriously basketball life more serious i should say and just go from there
3: all right i gotta press you on this though i mean you say you had a pretty good feeling he was coming what gave you that pretty good feeling that he was coming <laughs> well probably dwayne's text um, well no no but i mean was it was it before <laughs> dwayne's text that you had a pretty good feeling that he was coming or was it was it dwayne's text
4: um I, I just had a feeling before like i just with my gut feeling. I just I just figured he would try something different, come to Miami. And I, I seen how in fact I, I first noticed how close him and D Wade was at the uh at the Zoe Summer Group. And that was the first time I ever met Bron. And then even then me and Bron clicked so it was like like okay, if somebody LeBron James is clicking with me and D Wade, like I could see I could see this eventually happen. And then once the rumor started going, the more you know, the more they talk about it the more truth starts the more truth it starts have to it. So I was like, yeah, I think he's coming. I, I remember telling my mom in like, I think he's going to come and and what, what, was what, what,
5: was was there a scene because you mentioned you were the only one on the roster? I'd totally forgotten that Would, Did you like have to go to the facility for rehab and you were the only player there because you're the only one under contract like is there Is there a moment where you realize, holy crap, I really am the only current active heat player?
4: <laughs> well, I didn't really have to do rehab at first I just had surgery, so I had like uh, I had to be on bed rest for like a good week. So after when when that week I was on bed rest, that's when everything was transpiring. Yeah. So that next week when I started coming back in, that's when everybody started showing up and that's when Broad and them started coming and everybody was there. So I just started to see it then and to see what it could be
3: so when was the first time that you got the sense that this was going to be completely crazy um because i we talked about this with ud and we've talked about it with eric reed and others and that i mean no team in nba history in my opinion has ever faced the level of scrutiny and interest that you guys did um just from the very start with the media uh, with other players taking shots at you guys from the very beginning, whether it was Paul Pierce or Marcin Gortat, I mean, it was just seemed to be everybody around the league was like had a problem with what you guys were doing. And then you guys had the smoke show at the arena with the three of them. Um, but when was it training camp that you guys got a feel for what this was going to be like? When did you kind of recognize like? okay, this is the Heatles. Uh, this is, as Eudonis called it, the big three and the little 12. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and this is just going to be absolutely crazy.
4: Uh, I'm not going to lie. I knew once they had that uh, that little welcome party at the arena. That, that first night, because uh, I, I used to live right across the street from the arena, and that, that night when they first told me, uh, when the media guys had called me, was was like, yo, you should come up to the, to the press conference for the big three. And I was like, okay, I ain't doing nothing. So I went up there, and I just seen the atmosphere, all the fans, just the vibe of that building, I was like, oh yeah, this is gonna be crazy. Like this is this is gonna be something that I would never be able to describe to anybody else. Like, if they are not here in this moment, or for these however years we're gonna be together, you won't know what this felt like. And that's why I still tell people to this day, that like, yeah, you can't you can't describe those four years
5: no and, and I was there that night I I went as a fan I remember they threw that thing together like in five hours like it was like four o'clock the, the, the night that they were going to do it and they're like hey we're selling ticket we're not, not even selling we're like you know you have to get a ticket from the arena in order to go and yeah, it was
4: like it, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah And it was like just drop it every awesome. it was drop
5: drop everything and go and it was so much fun like I remember like I still say that's one of the most fun days I've ever had as a Heat fan from the decision to that party whatever you want to call it like it was so much fun and to me it's funny that it ended up becoming the thing that like a lot of people used to hate miami the fact that they were kind of rubbing it in everyone's faces but still like like you're saying it was you had to be there to really enjoy and capture that atmosphere
4: right it was just it was just a different different time different atmosphere
3: so it didn't here's the thing about it though and we talked to ud a little about this also is that it didn't start the way it was supposed to start, right? People were talking about you guys were going to win 70-plus games. You're going to beat the Bulls' record. It was going to be easy uh, from the very beginning, and then he gets hurt in Memphis. You guys are 9-8 and in Dallas, and I've talked to some guys about this, but I wanted to see if you could take us inside that locker room a little bit. It's not you're 9-8. and You're in Dallas. We had the situation where LeBron bumped into Spo on the court, um, which both guys have talked about a little bit. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit since. Um, can you give us any insight? Because here's what I remember from that night covering that game is that I went to the press room and ran there to write a story. And again, everything was sort of chaotic because it was a bad night. You guys didn't play well. Things were sort of a lot of pressure. Things were starting to fall apart a little bit. And then we went to try to talk to you guys. And the locker room was closed for 45 minutes um, while you guys were, were talking. Can you give us any insight at all into what were you trying to sort out in there? Because after that meeting, uh, you guys ripped off 20 out of 21, from what I remember.
4: I was going to say, that that was just a meeting to be like, okay, um, y'all ready now? (laughs) Y'all got all the kinks out, all the cobwebs out, y'all ready to go? That was just what that meeting was all about. It was just everybody put out what they thought they brought to the table, what they can bring to the table. And then figuring out how to put it together. And then we put it all together and went on the street.
3: Who led it? Even before you had Shane and and even before you had Ray, like you had, you know, some veteran guys on that team. But you also had guys like, I know you were tight with Joel. Joel's more quiet guy. I mean, you had James Jones, you know, when he speaks, guys listen. But uh, I'm just trying to figure out, like, who who took the lead in that thing? And how much did you feel that you needed to say?
4: Honestly, I want to say he was either Bron UD or uh, D Wade that took the lead. I don't really remember off off the top, but back then I mean I was I was just in my third year in the league, so I really didn't say too much. You know, they asked me a question. I said my little piece on what I could bring to the table, what what I feel like can help us, and and that was it. But for the most part, I was quiet back then. You know, I was just trying to listen and, and figure out everything, learn everything. Um, you know, I had been through different types of teammates, so I I just didn't know. I mean, I had Jermaine on the other teammate, Sean Marion um so it was just different people did different things and i i was just taking it all in see how people reacted. and see what goes on on this level
3: all right so i want to take you through a few things here kind of rapid fire here some big moments from the big three era um some things that some of the people on twitter uh, sent to us over at five reason sports that they wanted to ask about the night that you guys ended Lin'sanity, can can you take us through that? Because I I've I saw you play some pretty good defense over your time in Miami, but I've never seen you and Norris defend the way that you guys defended last night. Was that was that personal? Was that I mean, what, what was because there was so much buildup to that game. And he could not breathe, Jeremy Lin, uh, that entire game in American Airlines Arena. Like, can you take us behind the scenes on that a little bit?
4: Um, that was Spo's fault to be real with you guys. Spoh uh, Spoke that up. Spoke told us like, Oh, it's Lenny Sanity, he told me here eat our guards, So, you know, Spoke gassed that up and then you know how I am. Once you challenge me, I'ma prove that I'm gonna prove them wrong. And Norris is the same way. So once we got that challenge, it was like, okay that's how y'all feel, we're going we gonna to shut this down real quick and show y'all that you know this, we're still the best in the heat right now and that we, gonna, we run everything over here. So that was what that was really about.
3: Did he talk to you at all during that game? I mean, because I've never seen a player look as frustrated as he looked that night. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com, slash Miami Heat.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
4: <laughs> I think that night he said one thing to me, like, What did I do? <laughs> I that was the he did after. He's like he's like, What did I do? Why why is this happening? What did I do? I was. I think I just started laughing. And that was one funny thing I do remember. That was my one last thing in the story. He was just like, What did I do? <laughs> and I was like, hey,
5: was there like a game plan going into the game? Was there like a thing that you wanted to stop him doing, or was it just you versus me and I'm not letting you do anything?
3: No, it was you versus me, man. You versus me, one on one. Let's see what happened. Yeah, it, it was incredible. I, he, he literally could not breathe. And I, I think what built up to it a little bit was I remember in like the two, three weeks before it, like I remember LeBron and, and Dwayne being asked if like Lynn was going to end up being the best player in the league. Like this was like what was going on. I mean, people forget, but like those two months were crazy because he got built up in new york and then I, that was one of the most hyped games actually of the big three era and you guys were absolutely dominant All right, i want to take you through a couple more here game four of the 2012 nba finals where and i'm going to say it because it's a podcast but this is the one after which uh, you scored 25 and dwayne wade came through the tunnel and said mario motherfucking chalmers um <laughs> <laughs> go through that one a little bit if you can
4: you know me. I, I see. I see the moment. I see an opportunity for me to shine on the big stage. And so when I seen Brian go down with cramps uh, coming out that timeout, I said, D-Way, you give me the ball. I'm gonna score." So D-Way drove left, came back threw it to me. Um, I got past Rusberg and I was able to get the layup. And I was like, "I told you. Like this is what I do. Like I'm for something in me. Like my mind changes the last two minutes of the game. Like I, I want the ball. I want to do everything. I want to be everywhere. I want. I want to be the reason why."
2: We win. I want to help
4: be the reason why we win. And you know, at that moment in time, that was that was the game. I had been struggling, you know, game two game three, been in foul trouble. Um didn't really get to play that well, shoot that well. So that was that was my mindset going to game four. It was uh Spa was telling me that whole morning don't shoot out. we need you today. We're gonna win the championship, we need you. And you know when my number was called I just try to provide.
5: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host Rencarlo Navas, and here at Heat Beat we talk all things Miami Heat from the absurd
4: The last time I saw Dion, I want to say it was like early March, he was hanging out in the locker room and he looked like he put on a few pounds, (laughs) so I know you guys are all
5: excited about that. (laughs) To the serious. Wayne Ellington in particular was just getting caught on a screen for multiple seconds and that just, that puts so much strain on the rest of the defense. With guests ranging from some guy on Twitter named Kevin to ESPN hosts like George Sedano, we have a little something for everyone and anyone. Check us out every week here at the Five Reasons Podcast Network or find us on Twitter at MIAHeapy for all our updates, pods, and videos.
3: All right, let's move to the next one here. Uh, I was at this one because I was covering the team on this road trip. Uh, The 10 three-point performance in Sacramento. That night. I know that's a personal favorite for you. I remember you saying something after the game like you could have had 12 or 13 if you'd got more opportunities. Um, but I mean, but, the, but the thing you realize in watching that YouTube clip is like he were up
5: by 35 in that game. Like I feel like if it was a closer game, maybe he could have gotten to 12 or
4: 13. Yeah, Mar, he, Mar, he t- Spo yeah. took you
3: out, right? From what I remember.
4: Spo took me out with three minutes and 35 seconds left in the game. I know what time I came out because I begged him to stay in the game. I said, Spo, I, all I need is one more three to, to break the record just let me get one more three and he wouldn't let me do it i'm still mad at spoke to this day for that i wanted that record <laughs> i wanted that record so bad especially because that game meant so much to me just because of what happened the night before important you know um i got my number called for the three for the game and i missed it mm-hmm. and you know that that stuck with me that whole night the next morning and it was just like it kept replaying in my head so i was like you know what i gotta change it and you know that morning i remember that shoot around that morning I listened to one song the whole day, and uh, and you know it got me going, it got me in a good rhythm, and you know, I felt it from the beginning when I hit that first three. I was like, oh yeah, it's gonna be a good night. And my teammates kept feeding me; they told me keep keep going. So that was one thing that, that was personal. That was a personal game for me because I had to prove myself for the night before. All
3: right, so let's go through a couple more of these. Um and I'm going to give you a chance to answer this one because you told me I could ask you about this one, and this made a little bit of this made a little bit of noise on social media recently. Why uh, did you of- think well, a lot of noise? Why did you think? Because I was at this one too in Milwaukee, and it's that iconic photo of uh, the pass from from D Wade back to LeBron for the dunk uh, in Milwaukee. It's and now somebody actually just got it tattooed on their leg, like this. I mean, this is one of those plays that that everybody uh, remembers, except you remembered. Making the pass to lead to that particular play. And I guess there were some internet sleuths who figured out that you were not on the court at that time. So do you just remember it differently? Like, this is your opportunity to give an explanation for that.
4: This is what happened. So that day when the picture came out, I was on Instagram and I kept seeing the picture, kept seeing the picture, kept seeing the picture. So I was like, you know what? I was with some of my friends. I was like, you know what? I got the steal anyway. So being funny. And they was like, I bet you won't say that. So I was like, I would, I don't care. I mean, I, did, I didn't really think that it would blow up this big. You know, back then, social media wasn't that big in 2009, 2010. So when I said it, I really wasn't thinking that people would go research and really be like, oh, you wasn't in it, da, da, da. Like, I really knew I wasn't in that play. Like, I, I knew from the jump. I was just being funny. Didn't think it would go that far. So to anybody that was offended by what I said, I apologize, but I don't, because it was just a joke. So get off your high horse and laugh with me.
2: <laughs>
3: but didn't you? But you did make the. Pa- didn't you make the pass to LeBron that led to the dunk that killed Jason Terry? Like the 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 play in Boston? Cause,
4: cause, cause no, I no, because uh, D Wade D got the steal, threw it to me, and I threw it to Norris, and Norris threw the lot.
3: Okay, okay, that's right. Okay, I, I one, knew you. The one I I you
4: threw, in it. The one I threw to LeBron was when I got the steal and I threw it over my head in Sacramento,
3: and he did the the windmill. Yes, I remember that one. Okay, so that's right.
4: I yeah, I remember playing. I was just being funny. Just didn't think it would go that far. So. Uh, all right, well that's good. <laughs>
3: My we,
2: <bad>. we, we, <laughs> that's
3: all right. That's all right. It was good entertainment for a couple of days. All right, going to give you a couple more here that we got uh, on Twitter. The the game where LeBron was chewing you out and then apologized to you for it afterwards, which is the only time that I saw that actually happen, where he apologized to you for doing that to you. Uh, and that happened in the uh, on the sideline um, can you go through a little bit of that like what were you right about and he was wrong about
4: um, that was just a conversation between me and him it was, it was kind of like you know I felt like he was complaining too much about what was going on I'm like yo you're the, you're the star player of the team like stop acting like a bitch and let's just play basketball and anybody that knows Bron knows that word bitch he doesn't like and that'll get him going no matter where he at any time of the day if you want to get in Bron's head just say the word bitch and that's what will happen so it was that and you know, he, he understood what I was saying. It was like this this ain't just about me, like stop trying to blame everything on me. It's about everybody. It's like there's five people on the court, it ain't just me. And he was he understood what I was saying. He knew what he was wrong. So I mean, at the end of the day, it was nothing really, but that was a conversation that was being said, and I got benched for that game too. For after that, so did, oh well, did, did, we won the game. Yeah. <laughs>
5: did, did you ever take the screaming personally? Did you ever Did you ever get mad at it, or or or, or have it carry over to the locker room? Because it obviously became so much of a meme that even President Obama mentioned it at the White House. Uh, was was that something that you ever really took that personally?
4: Um, that's the thing about me, like. It was never, it was never the yelling and all that was never nothing malice. Like it was never no disrespect in it, never cussing me out or or saying nothing disrespectful. So, I mean, I, it was just water off my back. Like it was all about me growing up and learning how to play the game the right way and learning learning things from different people, learning things from accomplished stars that have been to the finals, been Olympians, been you know different things. So. Um, There have been moments where I was like, all right, it's enough. Enough is enough. But it never spilled over to the locker room or nothing like that. It was like on the court and once it's done, okay, we, let's go eat dinner. All right, let's go do something. Like, our relationship would never change over something happened on the court.
3: One of the things that amazed me about that team, Rio, and then we'll get to a couple of other moments here, is I've said of all the teams that I covered over 20 years that I felt like those big three teams, particularly kind of the middle years, like the 2012, uh, you know, sort of 2011 through 2013, like were some of the closest teams that I ever covered. Like it seemed like you guys really liked other. Each- other, um, that like, there was a, a real mix of personalities in there, but, um, you know, I just remember relationships that you had, like with Joel, your relationship with Mike Miller, um, and some of the other guys on that team, like, was that kind of a unique experience? I mean, and was that caused at all by, by some of the crap that you were getting, you know, kind of you, not you specifically, but the whole team was getting, uh, from kind of the national media and fans and, and places that you went?
4: That made us closer. You know, being on that team, being hated by everybody just kind of made you appreciate the 12 guys, the 13 guys that you beat in the locker room every day, that you go into war with every day. And like you said, I got along with both groups. Like I, I was part of the little 12, but I was also friends with the big three. So I was also a little brother to the big three. So um, I'm just type of guy, I get along with everybody. You know, I just, as a matter of fact, when you called me earlier, I was with Joel. So um you know still to this day I talked to him I talked to Mike when I was in Memphis he came to the games we hung out and stuff like that so um just being with those guys like the go winning championships and going through the battles that you go through to win those championships those friendships usually last a lifetime and you know still to this day I still talk to Rashard Lewis I still talk to Ray Allen I still talk to Big Z when I see him so I you know I still talk to I still talk to Big Cat when I see him in Toronto or when they come play us so um, just being on a teammate with those guys, being on the team with those guys, um, I feel like I have a connection to them for a lifetime. Like even even Jermaine O'Neill, like I still talk to him. So um, yeah, it's just being go through those battles, you always don't remember those moments and have lasting friendships, whether whether you hang out all the time or whether you see each other or check each other once a month, you know, you still got that type of bond and that type of, type of friendship. The night you
3: guys went back to Cleveland, that, that first time uh, in December of 2010, uh, were you uh, – we, we've talked to some people who were, like, literally afraid that night because of the atmosphere in that building. Was, was that the worst but was that the worst it ever was, and, and do you have any specific memory from that and kind of the way that LeBron handled that that night when he went back to Cleveland for the first time?
4: Me, personally, I wasn't scared until I seen a battery get thrown on the court, and then I heard about the guy running trying to grab the officer's gun. When I heard those two things, then I was scared. I was like, I mean, you know what, I'll just go to the locker room and I'll wait till the next day. <laughs> Y'all can have this one. But, I mean, just going through that, security did a great job. Um, you know, Bron did a great job of not letting the fans get to him and not not taking not reacting to their disrespect, I should say, because that night, that night I heard a lot of things that I don't even know if I could have turned the other cheek to and, you know, take my hat off to Bron for, for him being a bigger person and doing things like that. But um, I would say that is the craziest atmosphere I've ever been in for a basketball game. I will give that title to that.
3: And I want to take you to. We talked about the Ray Allen shot a little bit earlier. Um, you were calling for the ball on that shot, right? 2013 NBA Finals, Game Six.
4: I don't know if I actually called for the ball or I just had my hands up because I was open. So I just don't really know what was said or if I just had my hands up because I was wide open. I was wide open all by myself. So but admit it. I feel it. like you had Ray. If you had Ray Shooter or me Shooter, I feel like you couldn't go wrong either way.
3: Okay. Because <laughs> I was, was going to ask you, I mean, I mean, deep down, I mean, do you wish the ball came to you then? Because this is, you have one of the most, as we mentioned earlier, you have one of the most iconic shots in college basketball history. And I think the Ray Allen shot may be the most iconic shot in NBA history. So, I mean... Deep down, do you look back and you're like, I know you're still friends with Ray. Ray's whole career was kind of summed up with the preparation that led to that one particular shot to have his feet in the right place, to get the shot off in time, uh, and everything that, that that went down there. Uh, but uh, admit it, Rio, you wanted the shot, right? I mean, you wanted the opportunity there.
4: I'll admit it. I wanted the opportunity, but I didn't care who made it long, somebody made it. I don't care if a fan grabbed it and shot it off the crowd on the first row and made it and they counted it for three points. As long as we took San Antonio to overtime for that game seven or for that game six that day, I was happy for it. I didn't really care, to be honest. I just wanted another shot. I wanted my second
3: ring. I want to take you to the last season uh, with the team because, I, you know, I've talked to Dwayne a lot about this uh, after and some of the other guys. And I, I, what's interesting to me is that Golden State now has been able to uh, be a little bit bored, I guess, in their fourth season together, uh, but still managed to win a championship. And I felt like in that fourth year, you guys were – a little bit bored maybe i don't know if you guys were maybe a little bit sick of each other maybe sick of the pressure of it or what but it didn't feel quite the same that the two previous years did and i know the finals for you didn't go the way that you wanted them to go uh in 2014 that that was frustrating for you too what was that kind of last year in miami like for you and what was it like for the team
4: that year yeah that year you just feel like a little bit of tension um I don't know where it was coming from. My guess i would say between the players in the front office. But I mean that's that's what a little bit started to take toll. I think it was like um I think it was a lot of nitpicking for a team that went on a twenty seven game winning streak. And I'll just leave it at that. And I just think different things like that kind of kinda of made our team fall apart towards the end. And then going against the San Antonio team that had they had they tasted blood. They they wanted revenge on us, so um we was banged up. It was just a lot of things going on. We wasn't ready for that series, um, and it was quite obvious the way it,
3: it Does it go differently though? Because I, I, you know, it did not look like you guys were ready for that series mentally, or it's all kinds of things—preparation, mentally, the whole deal. But if the air conditioning doesn't go off that night in San Antonio, and LeBron can stay in the game because uh, you guys were in position there um, to really kind of deal a little bit of a death blow to them. I mean, because you were going to be heading home. Uh, back to Miami, and and what I remember, um, I mean, the air conditioner still hadn't gone on uh, by the end of the game. I mean, I remember you guys, uh, like guys, didn't want to get in the shower because they knew as soon as they got out of the shower, they're going to be wet again. You know, because
4: yeah, they took at the hotel.
3: Yeah, right. So, so I mean, what what was what was that like? And do you think because I've talked to a couple guys about this who think that there was something to all of that? Like, what did you think as players? Did you think that that was just an accident that that happened that night? Because I remember the Spurs players got fans in their locker room, and you guys had to ask for them, uh, from what I recall. Like, what did you think of that whole experience?
4: The old saying goes, "People do anything to win," right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. People do anything to win. So I don't know if they set it up on purposely, but it was a lot of stuff. Like, even even headed to the arena for game one, I heard there was a snake in the locker room. Like, they found a snake in our locker room. And anybody that knows me knows I'm terrified of snakes. Like, that's my biggest fear in the world. So my mind was already messed up for game one once they told me that. So I, was, I just think it was, a, it was a lot of things that happened. We wasn't ready for that series. Yeah. I wish we could do it all over again. I'll but say
5: but, that. but but like Ethan said, the crazy thing is that if air conditioning works, and even still, you won a game in <laughs> San Antonio after the air conditioning didn't work. So it, it was just kind of crazy. But I feel like one because they, they made a tactical adjustment in Game theory, and I felt like at that point there just wasn't any coming back. But uh, the so so that that series ends, and it, w- is there almost like a sense of relief? That's kind of the sense that I got from the locker room was we we're, we're just exhausted after all these years of competing. Beating. And I think that's now what Golden State is feeling is that sense of, holy crap, we have to keep going again and again at this. And it's just exhausting every year to go to the finals and play 100 games a season.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I think towards our fourth year, we started thinking about taking short cuts. It's like, OK, can we fast forward and see we just get to the finals? So I think that is something you got to battle with. But, you know, I think Golden State's doing a good job of, of maintaining, doing what they're doing. Um, you know, they just won the championship this year. Um, so yeah i mean it it happens. I think teams can't stay together i think I think we just had too much going on. I think it was too much between the front office and the players and everything like that 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 just it was just time for a change for everybody.
0: This week on the Ballscast, one of Miami's top 10 podcasts as voted by Miami New Times. We continue to talk about how everything is terrible and why it's important to vote this November because SCOTUS is on the line. We also talk about Mitch McConnell and what
5: he looks like. And we're going to be giving away a free 30-minute wake surfing class by Miami Wake Academy. Check them out at MiamiWakeAcademy.com. It is super duper cool. Follow the Ballscast on Twitter at Ballscast and listen to the latest Balls Cast episode for details on how to enter the contest.
3: Did you know he was leaving before he left in 14? Did you know LeBron was was definitely going? I mean, because I, I talked to a couple of your teammates at the time who basically told me they thought he was going to leave. Uh, but whenever I talked to the front office, they thought he was going to stay. So I don't know if they had a blind spot about it or what, but it did not seem like everybody was on the pa- same page. Did, did you know he was gone before the Sports Illustrated article came out? Well, you do say. <laughs> I, I don't. That's I don't think we asked him this of, question. I, i I well, I will, say, I will say, I will say, I've asked him off the pod, but I did not ask him on the pod. I'll just, I'll just leave it at
4: that. Oh man. Um. Yeah, I knew he was leaving. I did. I did know he was leaving. But I think, I think the gap was there. was certain things that he was asking for that I didn't. I didn't really know he was asking for, but I heard like I just heard bits and pieces. I think it was certain things that he was asking for that you know. Pat wasn't really wanting to do. And I just think it got to a point where, you know, it was time for a change.
3: I got you. Okay. Well, that's, I, I will say there's a couple of other teammates who kind of told me the same thing. So I, I, I think that there was sort of a general understanding that he was going, but I, again, I don't think that the front office grasped it until uh, until he actually left. All right. So I want to transition here from a little bit, but before we do this, uh, we asked the same question of, of UD. So I wanted to ask it to you what should what should people remember the Heatles for?
4: I was just saying a team that, that has fun. You know, we a team that went out, competed every night. Um, you know, even though we labeled they, people labeled us as a Hollywood team, there was no team in the NBA that was, that could say they outworked us. And that was one thing that we prided ourselves on was we're gonna have fun, but we're gonna work hard too. And, you know, as a team that I feel like majority of the time we left it all on the court. Um, we gave it all we got and we the team that uh, we the ones that got bronze, uh final streak started. Without us, he wouldn't have eight, eight straight finals, huh? It wouldn't be started like that. But so I laugh and joke about stuff like that. But, you know, we're a team, team that gave it off. You know, people call us the first super team. We'll say we were the first super team ever put together. So uh, I'm sure we're going to be known for different
3: things. When you look at what's happened to you since – you've left the heat obviously you had to deal with a very serious injury um which is something that a lot of guys don't come back from uh in terms of of the achilles i know demarcus cousins trying to come back from it right now during a free agency year which is not the easiest thing to do uh what has been rewarding for you since you've left miami and what has been most challenging for you since you've left miami
4: i think the most rewarding part was when i started out to memphis you know i was actually able to play my game and show so that I could be a elite guard in this league, and I could do the things that I was saying that I could do when I was at Miami that I didn't really get a chance to show. Um, So that was that was some of the good things. Uh, somebody that fought back, you know, like you said, the Achilles injury, that was a big thing, kept me out for a whole year. But I'm just proud of myself for the way I fought back, uh, finished the whole year, had a healthy year with with Memphis last year. Um, even though it didn't turn out the season that we wanted to turn out, but you know, I'm just happy that I was able to bounce back. You know, I had a great summer, a full summer that's um, fully healthy with no injuries, and I just get to, to work out as much as I want and not have any limitations or setbacks or I have to worry about anything. I just you know, I just grind like I, I'm used to it and see what happens, see what happens next in my career.
5: But what is the hardest part of recovering from an Achilles injury? Because a, a lot of people talk about it as this really debilitating and difficult injury to recover from. What is that like, and, and how did you kind of get through it and, and now are on the other side of it?
4: For me – I think for me, the hardest part was it was my right foot. And when you watch me play, I'm not a person that really drives left. So my main focus the whole time was pushing off my foot and, and figuring out how to use my right leg and get my speed back and everything like that. It was, it was something that like I really never had to focus on before because it was always natural to me. So, um, you know, that was the hardest part, keeping your weight down. You to make sure you eat right. Um, and then just the rehab. You know, the rehab's tough. You're gonna hit I hit a wall at like the first after the first three months it was like I didn't get better for like a good two months. And they said that's normal, but you know, anytime you're doing recovery, you wanna get better each and every day. And when you feel like you don't get better, it's a uh, it's 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 deflating. And I will say I had moments where I was deflated where I just wanted to give up and be like, you know what, I'm just done. And then I've had moments where like you can't be done. You gotta keep pushing. Like people don't come back from this injury. So you gotta battle, you gotta battle yourself and battle different thoughts. And I think that's the hardest part.
3: You obviously had a relationship with David Fisdale um, in Miami, and then you get a chance to play for him in Memphis. and that ended up being a rough situation for him at the end. I mean, I would assume you and Fiz still have a a pretty strong relationship. and now he ends up uh, he ends up with the Knicks. What was sort of your impression of of how that played out for him there? And and do you think that this opportunity for him in New York is one that he can run with?
4: Um, I definitely think this this situation in New York is one he can run with. I think the thing with Memphis was I don't want to bad mouth them, but that's just an organization where they need a lot of help. You know, spending the last year there, just seeing different things. And after coming from Miami, it's like it's two two totally different places. Like being there, being in Miami, it was like people people want to be one of the players to succeed and like that's what they most cared about was winning and making sure you was in the right position to be successful. And then going to Memphis is a little bit different. You know, once Fizz got fired, um, you know, everybody knows he had a situation with one of the players on the team. Um but in in my mind, I think it's just hard for a team to choose a player that's that's Got maybe five, six more years left over a coach that's proven himself, that's proven himself that you actually gave a chance to. So it, it's a different situation, but I definitely think he can run with the Knicks situation, and it'll be perfect for him because he's that type of person. He's he's a great coach. He's a player's coach, and he doesn't have an ego. And I think that's one of the most most great things about Coach Fizz is his ego. He doesn't have one.
3: Well, it's interesting to me that you say that about the situation in Memphis because I feel like a lot of heat. Players are sometimes frustrated with the structure in Miami and then they get outside the structure in Miami. And I mean, Dwayne sort of spoke to this too. Like, after going to Chicago and Cleveland, he's like, okay, you know, <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> the way they do things in Miami. So it's interesting for me to hear you say that too, because I feel like LeBron experienced a little of that too when he went to Cleveland, even though he had more control and more power up there, that there were things he was trying to bring from Miami. Um, to the cleveland organization so is it one of those things that maybe you maybe appreciate sort of the things that even though you may not like it all the time when you're in miami that you appreciate it a little bit more when you're gone yeah
4: i think i think it did take for me to leave to really appreciate what was going on there um you know a lot of people when you get to this stage you know you feel like some of the work that you need to be doing is already mostly done so you don't want to work as hard you don't want to do all the little things and here in Miami it's like they make you do that. They on top of you about doing the little things. They're on you about your weight body fat and things like that. And which is only better for you, making you a better player. And then going to different organizations where they do weight body fat but they're not as serious about it or you know, they, they want you to work out, but, like, they want to control your workouts and tell you what you need to be working on. It was just things like that, like, like how how am I going to get better? How am I better myself by only doing the things that you want me to work on? Like, why not work on everything about my game or let me do everything that you brought me here to do? And it was, just, it was just one of those things. Like, being in Miami, I felt like I was in a box sometimes, but it was because I had Bron and D-Wade and CB. Like, players that was developed and, and better than me and had more of a name than me and was more successful. And then me being coming to Memphis, you know, two-time NBA champion, coming off an Achilles injury, like, I felt like they wasn't trying to really work with me. Like, I felt like once Fizz got fired, like, they just – they didn't really care anymore. Nothing against the organization or to, or to Coach JB, because Coach JB is great. You know, he's a great coach. But I just think the organization in Memphis just needs a little bit more help.
3: Do you have one uh, favorite point guard matchup? Over the course of your career, like one guy that you really relished playing against, I'm—I have a guess here, but I'm gonna let you say it. Um, Was was there somebody that you really enjoyed competing against?
4: I want to hear your guess. Who do you think it was?
3: I think it's CP. Am I right on it?
4: Definitely CP. Okay. Yeah, definitely CP. Um, it's just because, you know, with me we coming into the draft, um, you know, C P was one of my mentors. He was one of the person that, you know, when I had my first workout in New Orleans, you know, he met with me before like, okay, this is what they expect, this is what they want you to do, you know, to be successful in the league. You gotta do X, Y, and Z, A, B, C, da da. And it was just like he kinda took me under his wing, not really knowing me. Um, and it was just it was just one of those things like, okay, the teacher versus student. Anytime I play CB, I look at him like one of my teachers. And like I, I want to go at him. I want to. I want to get the best of him every time. But. It's nothing but love and respect for that, man, just because of what he's meant to me as a person and as a friend and as a teacher. Like, CP means a lot to me. So
5: what made him – what makes him so unique or so different compared to other point guards that you're playing against? Like, what what, what sort of is the defining quality of Chris Paul that makes him so much different than any, than any other point guard in the league?
4: For me, it's just how smart he is with the basketball. Like, with CP, he's always three, four, five plays ahead of the next play. So he sees the court – he sees things going on before they happen. And as a point guard, that was something that I liked and I wanted to, to develop and be able to learn. And, you know, just his basketball IQ, the way he carries himself, the way he plays the game, um, you know, he's, he's just a good dude, a real good dude. And, You know, he's always been great to me. and always been nice to me and always helped me out. So... Um, you know, it's just the relationship that I have with here.
3: I want to get to your relationship with Heat fans because I, it, it's always fascinated me because I feel like they miss you more now also. Like you say, you sort of miss Miami more since you left. Like, I feel like they miss you more since you've left. And I know at times uh, they could be a little rough, um, but it was sort of, I don't know, it was like felt like more of a tough left thing than it did like a really critical thing of you. Like, how did you experience the way that, say, Heat fans experienced you, and and so how do you sort of evaluate what that relationship is?
4: It's funny because I guess I guess I look at the Heat fans as you know they look at me as their little brother too. <laughs> so when they see me out, they're like, "Oh, we miss you." The little brother needs to come back. And I'm like, "Hey, I'm 32 now. I'm not a little brother anymore." <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a big brother. But you know, it's it's funny just to see all the fans. Like I get so many fans just walk around the streets and Miami. Like, "Oh, we miss you. You need to come back." Like, nobody plays as hard as y'all did. Like, we need that that energy and that finesse that you bring to the game and that, that grit that you bring to the game. And it's like, I would love to be back in Miami. Like, this is where it all started for me. This is where I would like to end my career once that point comes to it. But, you know, I would love to be back here in Miami and, you know, just see what happens. It's great that the fans still love me and they miss me and I still get a warm welcome. So it's always fun. It's always fun to be here. I still call this place my first home. I mean, my my NBA home, I should
3: say. I want to move um, to some of the work that you do off the court, um, also because I saw that this was pretty cool. Are you are you an author now at this point? Because it looks like you've gotten involved in some books, right?
4: Ah, uh, yes. I finally added the author to my uh, to my name. Um, came out with the ABCs of Basketball. Um, the book will be releasing in August. So um, you know, it's just something something different that I'm trying to do. Um, everybody knows about my foundation work with uh, the breast cancer and in in the youth initiatives and stuff like that. So um, it's just a different way that I can get back and reach out to the kids. And, you know, I was a big basketball fan growing up, and I love basketball. And it was actually how it actually came about. It was an 11th grade assignment for a, a child development class. And when I did it, my teacher was like, it's really good. You should think about pursuing it later. So once I had my child, my first son was born in 2008. It was something I started thinking about more and try to figure out how I'm going to get it out there. And We've been working behind the scenes, and, you know, now it's finally come come to the light. And, you know, we're just rolling with it. It's a great opportunity, great thing. And, you know, I hope everybody loves it and enjoys it as much as my kids
3: and I did. All right, so we'll try to promote that. So the ABCs of basketball. So you talked a little bit about how whenever your career ends um, – how much longer do, do you want to play and what is the plan after that? Do you want to get into coaching? Do you want to try it? You want to stay in basketball in the front office? Is there something outside of basketball that you want to do? Kind of what's the, what's sort of the five to 10 year plan for you?
4: Um, for me, I, I think I've got a good three to five more years left. Of me. Um, at least three co- really competitive years to probably transition, but uh, I do want to get 15 years playing and then, you know, either transition to thinking about being a coach or, maybe start off as a scout. And that's actually funny because me and, me and Rondo was working out the other day and we actually was talking about the coaching stuff. So um, I'm thinking about it. I haven't really made up my mind yet, but I definitely want to be involved in basketball when it's
3: all said and done. Wait, you were hanging out with Ron. Heat fans are not going to process that very well.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was my exact thought. Right. Hey. <laughs> Boston, Boston, Miami rivalry is done nowadays. So back in the day, we all friends now. All right. what, what, I, what
5: was what was it like though when you guys were going against each other though? I feel like that 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 must have been a good a good rivalry too. You know,
4: Rondo's actually one of my other favorite. That's my second favorite player to, get, player to play against, just because when I was coming out, that's who my comparison was. Like, oh, he could be another Rondo. Um... But just a better shooter. And so that was my label coming out. So that was made me study more about Rondo. And then when I played against him, just picking his brain different times. And, you know, once the rivalry and all that was done four years later, you know, we became close. Like, we talked, we text each other, and, you know, we played.
3: Obviously, the, the big news this week, what do you think is the best decision for him? And is there any chance, because uh, I know you still have a relationship with him. I actually thought you might end up in Cleveland at some point uh, while he was up there. Uh, is there any chance that maybe where he goes, you go?
4: Uh We haven't really talked about that, but um, where I think he's going, or where I think he should go, I think you he should. should come back to Miami. Okay. And why? I think that's where he should be. Just so we can put the old game back together one more time, so we see what we can do. Tell CB to come back and everybody come back. That's just a dream I have in mind, because I still have a bitter taste from that 2014 season, so that's what I would like to see. But in my gut feeling, I feel like I feel like he's gonna to go to LA. I don't have any inside scoop or I don't know any information before anybody starts asking me that I just think he's going to LA.
3: And is that because the reason that we've been given for him going to L.A. is he can kind of shape the team there a little bit. Like in Cleveland, obviously, there's a capped out situation. It's going to be hard to bring talent there. In Houston, if he goes down to play with CP3 and and Harden, they're probably going to have to get rid of a lot of the rest of the roster to do it. Philly, he's not a great fit with Simmons, even though there are some other things there. Um, is it that? Is it that you think he can kind of – Build the team out the way he wants it out there.
4: I think it's that, and I think it's off the court stuff too. You know, Brown is really big into his his movies and his his off the court production stuff. And I think being in L.A., he can get the best of both worlds. So I think that's why I would say L.A. personally. Just I think he can get the best of both worlds, and it's not just about basketball right now with him.
3: All right, that's interesting. All right, Mario Chalmers again. You can follow him at m mchalmers15. Um, check out the book coming out in August. ABC's. Of basketball, Say hello to him on the street down here in Miami. Tell him to come back to the Heat, which I know he already wants to do. And the, the quote that you gave me when we were going to talk today was, uh, you said we could talk about anything. I think I've had a a pretty good career. Um, come on, man. You think it's been better than pretty good, right? I know you're confident.
4: I try to be a little modest about my career, but uh, I've had a great career. I can't even lie. You know, being a kid from to Alaska, you know, being the third person from there to make it to the NBA, to win a championship on every level. I
3: couldn't ask for a better career, to be honest with you. All right, good stuff. Can we say it one more time? Mario can-
4: mother.